Hello, Bill. Good morning, Matt. Merry Christmas. Merry happy Christmas. Hanukkah. Oh, happy oh, Hanukkah's coming soon, though. Don't don't want to don't want to skip uh skip all the holidays. How was your Thanksgiving? Uh, it was it was good, and uh, because my my wedding anniversary falls around that time, I always you know we have family Thanksgiving, and then my wife and I will go away for a couple of days. So what is that story again? Why did you get married on Thanksgiving or near Thanksgiving? Intentionally, so I could um, go on my honeymoon when nobody wanted me. And then for the rest of my life, Bill, this was a great move. For the rest of my life, we can take off Friday and Saturday, do a little mini vacation, like a staycation or, you know, like we'll go to D.C. or Baltimore, stay at a nice hotel, go out to nice restaurants. And nobody cares. Nobody bothers you because work is work's not happening. (laughs) Very nice. Very nice. This is called planning strategy, Bill. And, and we did what well, I have to say, we won one of the things we did. Uh, uh, we watched Love Actually for the millionth time. And, uh, you know, every time I see it, there's so many things going on, Bill. I don't know how many times you've seen it. Uh, there's parts I like, parts I don't like, but I'm prepared for Christmas, our Christmas show at the end of the year. You know, we always have our annual show. I think we'll go into that maybe. Yeah, my, my wife watches Love Actually every year with her friends. I find it just aggressively mediocre. I do not understand why this has become a Christmas classic. Uh, to be continued. <laughs> to be continued. Look, I'm not saying it's um, it's a wonderful life or something, uh, but you know, it, it's it's become a part of us now. Embrace it, Bill. And and well, I like Hugh Grant as the Prime Minister. I'll say it. <laughs> well, I don't always get a mini vacation after Thanksgiving. But this Thanksgiving, uh, my wife and I, we were we were with family in New Jersey and we got tickets to see Liz Fair in Brooklyn the night after Thanksgiving. So we had a date night uh, immediately thereafter, which was, it was probably one of the best concerts I've seen. I don't know if you're a Liz Fair fan, Matt. Um, not as big as you. I know you are. You're a fan from way back, right? From back well, in the day. Well, yeah, Liz Fair is an Oberlin graduate, so she was she graduated, I think, five years ahead of me. So we we did not overlap, but you know she broke big, you know, around my junior senior year, and so there's always a deep affinity between Oberlin graduates and uh, and Liz Fair, which which was acknowledged. I mean, there are plenty of Oberlin alumni in Brooklyn. <laughs> Who were in that theater, uh, King's Theater? I don't King's. I've never been to King's Theater before, which it didn't ex- exist when I lived there uh, in the in the aughts. Uh, it was a it was a shuttered movie theater, but probably one of the most gorgeous theaters I've ever seen. So if you ever had an opportunity to catch a show there, I would definitely take it. Sounds awesome. As a Gen Xer, I applaud you and Liz Fair. Uh, but my it, queen it was definitely like. Uh, a your Gen X card is punched if you went to the Liz Fair 30th anniversary Exile and Guyville tour. Well, speaking of Gen Xers who are women who are uh, making a run and uh, and and earning our props, Bill uh, Nikki Haley is uh, 
is holding her own. Now, you know, this deserves some caveats, right? I mean, I just got a little nauseous at the notion that my generation is represented by Nikki Haley. <laughs> she's she's the voice of a generation, <laughs> and I think it's yours and mine. Uh, and she has now uh, earned the Koch brothers, uh, however many of them there are left, One. Uh, the, the Koch network, their support. And uh, that's that's a big thing, Bill. Is it? Is it I a think big it is. Thing I'm told it. I'm told that it's a big yeah, deal. I'm really arguing that it's a big thing because I don't think it's a big thing. Well, I think the the big argument is money, right? That it's that it's going to give her money, and money really matters within the context that she's running for second place. I think Ron DeSantis would have liked to have gotten that support, and he did not get it. Um, and I think this is a sign that the um, mainstream Reagan conservative movement is decided that Nikki Haley is going to be our vessel. Uh, I think that we could say, could you agree we could say that at this point? Yeah, I, 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 you know, I think Haley is eclipsing DeSantis as the uh, anti-Trump hope of the old guard type Republicans, the extent you want to put the Cokes in that, that basket. You know, they're a bit more libertarian, I think, than some of the other old guard Republicans, but uh, we, we need not quibble. Uh, it's sort of an interesting backstory because there was evidence that the Coke network was putting its thumb on the scale for DeSantis. In the earlier part of the cycle, they had commissioned a series of polls that uh, in swing states that compared Trump v. Biden, DeSantis v. Biden. And they uh, guess what? They all showed up DeSantis beating, doing better than, than Trump. And that was pushed out early as evidence of well, this is the most electable choice. Look at these polls. Uh, but that data was never, it, it wasn't replicated with other polling. So that made the argument hard. Uh, and, but the point is that I think the Cooks were expecting, the Cook Network was expecting DeSantis to be their guy, even though they didn't formally endorse. Uh, I think they made a statement that they, they wanted to stop Trump. And now, you know, DeSantis faded. Uh, Haley has had some signs of life, some upward movement, and so they put they 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 bet on that horse. But there's no evidence to me that the Koch network has all that much currency amongst the Republican primary electorate. Yeah, you know, with money you can go on, you can you don't have to drop out. Although I think Haley's fundraising was already doing you know pretty well in the in, in recent weeks. So she won't. She'll be in the in the game, presumably by Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina. Um, but there's like maybe twenty things that have to happen for Haley to perhaps actually knock off Trump, and this is like one of twenty. Yeah, I, I think we agree on that. Um, what are you supposed to say? What are you? By the way, Jack Schaefer over at Politico has a piece. Uh, basically making the point that the media has to hype Nikki Haley. And then uh, thanks to Jack, he he actually is pretty kind to me <laughs> in the piece. Uh, unless I'm misreading it, I don't think he's, uh, I, I think I kind of made it out unscathed. Um, but he has a point, obviously, right? I mean, we have to talk about politics. And um, I it's not that I, I don't think I'm hyping Nikki Haley. It, it always has the caveat, like Trump is the front runner, <laughs> Um, the only way that this works for Nikki Haley is if somehow, you know, DeSantis wins Iowa, 
Haley wins New Hampshire. That springboards her into South Carolina. She catches fire. Trump implodes. I mean, like, you have to have a whole bunch of things that happen, but we're, you know, things are happening. She's still in the game. And um, I think it's plausible that she could pull this off. That's as far as we get, right? I mean, even that, it, 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 like it's it's not the media's job to call it over. And that's, that's that it, they, they shouldn't be prejudging elections before they occur. Um, and perhaps they should even be in any kind of horse race mode where they're talking about who's up and who's down. They should just be reporting on the positions that these candidates take and just let the voters d- decide. Uh, but I, I, to the extent that some horse race ac- coverage is inevitable, uh, it shouldn't be artificial. It shouldn't be uh, egging on a competitive race that there's little evidence of it existing. I mean, it, 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 no, it's but fair. I agree. I agree, but I, I think that's an unfair uh, assessment. At least if, I'll just defend myself of what <laughs> I've written and what I've done because I can't speak for others. I'm sure there. I'm, I'm sure there are other people who have not been uh, responsible because uh, there's so many people out there. Statistically speaking, some of them have probably. Uh, gotten out of over their skis. But look, I think you can say on one hand, Trump is likely the nominee and it, nothing has ra- nothing has changed. And on the other hand, I think you could say it's a guy who's been indicted four times. This is a guy who uh, has been impeached twice. This is a guy who uh, is pretty old. This is a guy who is below 50 percent. This is maybe the most important point. In the early states, he does not have 50 percent in the early states. And I think we could make and and, and the last thing I'll say is it is within the realm of possibility that if you lose a couple of early states, that that changes everything. The bottom falls out now. Not likely to happen. I don't think it is wildly irresponsible to point that out. It's. I, I I think people are still straining to connect these dots. We still have Trump wildly ahead in every state. Um, he is technically below fifty, I, I believe, in in the averages uh, at uh, in the early states. But you're still t- so. I'm just looking at Real Clear Politics. He has his average is forty seven. This is based on three polls from late October to mid-November. DeSantis is at seven. DeSantis is thirty points behind, and Haley is thirty-three points behind. You know, you don't need fifty to win these states. You people, people t- t- typically win the early states with in the thirties. True, but uh, Trump. True, Trump is also the incumbent, effectively. I mean. It, it, so so what? That's why he's winning. I mean, you don't you, you, okay. you, don't, you, don't, you don't give every, everyone brownie points, bonus. But, but let me ask you this: they have to and win I, actual votes. And I, we we can keep going through the states, but I'll start. We're in Iowa now, right? Let me yeah. ask you this: Where was Rick Santorum at this point in 2012? Where was Mike Huckabee? At, maybe Huckabee might have actually been leading. I don't remember. Uh, it seems to me 
pretty frequently happens that someone at the last minute comes out of nowhere and wins Iowa and the Republican Party. Well, I think frequently is overstating it. I think 2012 was a very uh, unsettled, uh, up and down primary uh, period for Republicans, where Romney was the nominal front runner uh, going in, but not not by miles, uh, and with a good deal of um, uneasiness amongst evangelicals. And so you had these uh, these bumps of people that would have you know brief moments in the sun. So you had, uh, excuse me, I'm trying to look at my phone. It's not really cooperating me. Um, who is who is this red line? You're ordering red wine? No, there's like a red line, you know, of a sort of had a spike in the uh, early part of the year, and it's just not letting me see who it is. How am I supposed to engage <laughs> in hyperbole if you continue to try to look at data <laughs> during a conversation? Um, you would have been, I mean, imagine imagine a bar being at a bar with Bill Sher. Uh, debating some issue, and he he's the only person in the world who has a phone, and he pulls it out, and he's like, no, actually, Calvin Coolidge. <laughs> yeah, I think this is Cain. I think Herman Cain had the bump at the top of the year. It's either Cain or Gingrich. Um, I, think, I think there was a Cain bump and a Gingrich bump, uh, and uh, this, was, this was not the Huckabee year. Huckabee was 2008. 2008 was when Giuliani was nominally in front, and then he tanks. And then Huck- I think Michelle Bachman might have been uh, in play there at some point. Was that 12? Well, that's, that's a Bachman bump, I bet, actually. I think yeah, because remember, she won the Ames Iowa straw poll one year. Right. I think right. in 12 or 11, right. probably. I'm sorry. No, that, no, it's not Bachman. It's not because Bachman's a black one. Um, anyway, I'm sorry. But, you know, so how can we had a, had a late run? In after November, after Giuliani fades, because Huckabee had evangelical backing, and Santorum has a late run uh, because you know Gingrich fades and Kane fades, and they weren't settled on on Romney, uh, and so and, and so Santorum barely ekes out a win uh, at the at the very end. Um, so you do have some. It, it is possible to have. Yeah, uh, late surges in Iowa. But these are races where the front runner is like around twenty. You know, not people. You, you don't have a lot of examples of someone is riding close to fifty all the way through. Okay, this is, not, this is like some nobody, someone who has very firm name ID and very solid uh, support, and just suddenly flames out completely. At the very end. So if you're going to, I think if you're going to talk about this scenario where Haley uh, has a similar late surge, you got to put that in context of what other late surges were like, because they're not analogous to this current. So uh, let me just throw a couple things at you. Um, With the caveat, again, I think Trump probably wins, but let's poke some holes in it possibly, right? John Kerry overtakes Howard Dean. 
in Iowa late in the game, I think. Like a very, very modest front runner in that race, not someone who was cruising at, you know, in the 40s. Ted Cruz beats Trump. So Trump doesn't own Iowa. You got this Vanderplatz guy, this evangelical leader out there who I think has never missed with his endorsements. You've got Kim Reynolds, the governor of Iowa, who's endorsed Ron DeSantis. And you've got the fact that how can we ever believe the polls, Bill? How many times have we been burned believing polls? This is a caucus where you have to show up, you know, in 30 below zero weather and sit in someone's living room. So, I'm not aware of any case where someone was ahead by 30 points. I mean, if he's not ahead by 30 points in January, then we can revise. But uh, again, to, to be up by 30 this late... In the you know, less than two months away, you know Giuliani. You know Giuliani was an early front runner. He was already fading by this point. Uh, Hillary's Hillary was starting to fade 2008 around around this time. Uh, but uh, it, it, but there are also un, unusual circumstances there where um, uh, you have this Iraq War vote hanging over her. Uh, you had Barack Obama in the race that people weren't quite sure about. He hadn't consolidated black support yet. Uh, he. Uh, and was starting to consolidate white liberal support that able allowed him to get ahead of Hillary towards the end. Um, you know, the Vanderplatz dynamic in Iowa is, yeah, there's a very robust evangelical community that participates in the Iowa caucuses, and they have followed the Vanderplatz lead in a lot of cases. But what's happened in the evangelical community since 2016? You know, in January 2016, they weren't sold on Trump. A lot's happened since then between <laughs> and the evangelical. Fair point. Where I'm not convinced that Vanderplatz is going to be able to break the bond that's been forged. Uh, at least there's no there's no statistical evidence that it has. So it be Vanderplatz just endorsed DeSantis. Is that what that was last week? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I don't think we've had a poll since then, but let's see the next set of polls okay. of Iowa if there's any movement in DeSantis' way because of Vanderplatz. Call me highly skeptical. Okay. I would say you have a normalcy bias. <laughs> for and, and your normalcy bias is based on something that's abnormal, right? I mean, Trump is an aberration in and of himself, but now he's been here for eight years. And I think you are sold that Trump is essentially indestructible within the Republican Party. I think you've pretty much, ex- like, correct me if I'm wrong, like that is your operating assumption. I, mean, I, I didn't go in, you know, go back a year. I was not arguing Trump was unbeatable. I, I think there was a way to beat him, but it required a lot of coordination amongst various elements of the Republican Party training their fire on him much earlier on than, ha- than has happened. And so we've had the exact opposite where there's been a lot of defending of Donald Trump, even amongst people who want to defeat him in the primary. So I don't see any groundwork laid for a dramatic reversal of where the polls are right now. I mean, and even to the extent that you think it is still possible, you have Vanderplatz and Reynolds trying to prop up DeSantis in Iowa where you and a lot of other Republican big donors trying to prop up Nikki Haley. You don't even have a consolidation between the two most prominent opponents of Donald Trump, which is what you need right now. 
Uh, I, I don't the, the notion that uh, I mean, sure, if if DeSantis but, but he, no, one, sorry, DeSantis on. probably takes votes from Trump, Bill, which on one hand is a sign of how powerful Trump is and how big his coalition potentially is. On the other hand, I do think that it's better for DeSantis to stay in. Now, Chris Christie needs to get out before New Hampshire, and then then we move to New Hampshire, and I think Nikki Haley uh, could win that state. Usually, whoever wins New Hampshire, whoever wins Iowa does not win New Hampshire, and Iowa picks corn. What's the expression? New Hampshire picks presidents. Um, so once again, I think we have an opportunity in New Hampshire. Let me ask you this question. Uh, I, I got two I, questions okay, for you. Can I stop you right there, though? Because yeah. I don't think the notion uh, that New Hampshire picks presidents, I don't think that works under the current state of affairs in, in either party, quite frankly. I don't think New Hampshire's primary voters are in any way indicative of you know, Democratic primary voters in other states or Republican primary voters in other, in other states. Uh, there is a, there has been a dynamic where Iowa picks people who are uh, partial to the fringes of the of the two parties and New Hampshire ends up playing a corrective. But, you know, in 2020, you know, Biden was nowhere uh, in, in New Hampshire. And same with 2016. That elector has gotten very, very liberal very, very left, more so than the rest of the electorate and, and, and totally disconnected from the African-American South, which has been much more influential. Uh, on the Republican side, uh, there's definitely less evangelical presence. There's more social moderation. That happened to work in Trump's favor in 2016 uh, because they were not primed to vote for Ted Cruz. Uh, but uh, I, I, in if if Haley actually pulled it off mm -hmm. in New Hampshire, I have no reason to believe that because a bunch of pro-choice moderate independents, because independents can vote in those primaries, if they excuse me, if they flood into the primary to to boost Haley, that has no bearing on what more purely Republican electorates are going to do in the subsequent states. Except, so, that the except that the next big state is South Carolina, I think. Well, that's, I mean, even if even if that happened, we're, we're talking like many, many ifs here. I know. You know. That can be discounted as, okay, Haley won her home state, big whoop. You know, show me this is going to spill over to the, the states after that. Uh, I mean, if, if Haley, let's say DeSantis wins Iowa, Haley wins New Hampshire, Haley wins South Carolina. Um. You don't think that's enough? You think he pull? You think Trump pulls a Biden, even even later I than pull, Biden? I believe pull a Biden uh, in that scenario. I'm not saying it's a given. I mean, obviously, if he was to go down, you would need those building blocks to occur. But it is wholly plausible that uh, the Trump army gets their backup after that. And says no way, no how do we let these rhinos and the establishment stop our guy? Because those states are not going to be, um, uh, their electorates have their own idiosyncrasies that don't necessarily uh, apply to subsequent states. Gingrich won South Carolina, mind you, you know, in twenty in twenty twelve. Uh, I was kind of a Gingrich fan, Bill. You may not remember. Uh, anyway, 
crazy times. It's been a decade. Wait, but wait, um, your home state is is like the lowest bar to clear. I know, but it, I'm, I'm just talking about momentum. I'm saying if Haley wins New Hampshire and uh, wins South Carolina based off that momentum, and then she's hit, who knows? What but, do you? But, let me ask you this question. Why would she win? What is happening in the Republican electorate to suggest there is actually a true groundswell of anti-Trump sentiment that would fuel such a victory? The fact that Trump is like a little below 50 uh, in averages is not evidence of that because we know that some of the second choice votes for other people is Trump. It's not that they're deeply anti-Trump. The I would make a bet. It's nowhere Trump, near 50 Would you? Let me ask you this. Would you bet... We don't have to make a bet, but I would bet that Trump will lose either Iowa or New Hampshire. I would, uh, as it stands right now, I think I think I would say Trump runs the table. I don't think you, Trump you would take that money. Okay, so let's just put it. We don't have to put any money down or anything, but let's just put it out there. I'm predicting that Trump will not win Iowa and New Hampshire. You say he will. I mean, I, I mean, the, I, is your argument that? Uh, Either Vander Plaats and Reynolds resurrect DeSantis, um, or Christie drops out before New Hampshire, allowing Haley to consolidate the anti-Trump vote. That's one of those scenarios. Is what you're basing mm-hmm. your your prediction I on? I think my argument is based on a weird things always happen in these early states. We see through a glass darkly and they break late. Weird stuff happens late. I mean, I was in New Hampshire in 2008, the day before the primary, and I was or th- and I was convinced Obama was going to beat Hillary in New Hampshire. Everything, the, the polling, he was up big in the polls. Everywhere I went, there were signs, people sign waving. Things happen, right? Um, B, I think, these states course correct each other. So if Trump wins Iowa, I think it's less likely he'll win New Hampshire. So that's basically my premise. Um, But I I mean, course corrections happen because the electorates are not, uh, the individual state electorates are not homogeneous. Um, You know, Iowa is more Christian conservative, you know, New Hampshire is more, more libertarian. Uh, the South is the South, you know, so once it doesn't feel obligated to do what the other state does. But all evidence is that Trump has broad support across the Republican Party in every single state. Yeah. Look, I think fundamentally you believe in uh, what is, you know, data and trajectories and you're just looking at the numbers and you're saying there's nothing you're making a rational decision, Bill, that there's, there's nothing that would lead us to believe anything will change. And like, I totally get that. I think I'm just more open to like mysticism and magic. <laughs> okay. Now, having you, said you, that. This is your hope is not a plan, Matt. I mean, there's, there's nothing happening. There's no, yes. there's, there's no Tinder here. <laughs> there's no kindling that is beginning to Look. smolder. I agree, but weird <laughs> stuff happens. You know, you're watching a football game and one team's been down, you know, the whole the whole game and then all of a sudden they get a turnover and it's like, oh, now they're going to win. You know, it's just like 
there's momentum shifts and um, I get where you're coming from, but here's my question. I wonder if you and I are really that far off. Okay. So I think there's a certain percentage chance that Trump will not be the nominee. Okay. And I'm curious if you, you and I may, may actually agree. Okay. I'm, we may just be stressing uh, something differently. So I have the number in my head. I would write it down if you want, but you tell me what percent, what do you, what do you think the percentage is that Trump will either die or lose the, or, or lose the primary to someone else? Yeah. I think I'd put his chances of not being the nominee at 0.5%. And that is almost solely the possibility he could die. Okay. I'm deaf. I'm at like 20%. <laughs> I think there's like a 20, like one in five, like a 20% chance that Trump will not be the nominee. So, six, so look, we are six weeks away, man. 80%, 80% likely he will be. 80% likely he will be. So that's still, I mean, look. We're, so we're, we're six, six and a half weeks away from Iowa. And I grant that like weird stuff happens like the last couple of weeks sometimes, but like there is just nothing out there. Uh this this is you know dead cat dead cat bounce of Haley consolidating the anti Trump strands of the party now that she's moving and making inroads into the the soft Trump vote. Um, you know I think you have more faith in the polls than I do. I think I have more. Uh, forget forget polling. Faith in just what can you just anecdotally. Can you point to anything that suggests that voters on the ground are genuinely saying, boy, I really don't want this Trump going to be my nominee again? No. <laughs> to answer your question, no. <laughs> but these, I mean, I am, I am always, I am not always, I am frequently surprised by Iowa and New Hampshire, what they do. I mean, I really am. Like, it's really hard to predict. Now, I know you're going to say, but this is where the polls come in. You're going to say, but Trump's up by 40 points. And that's the difference. Well, that's because you're believing the polls, right? <laughs> but so it does, so it is about the polls. I mean, it's primarily about the polls. But if you, if you want to make an argument that the polls are wrong, give me some kind of uh, you know, qualitative data. <laughs> That gives me reason to suggest that this this is just name ID. This well, you know what's going to happen, is, Bill. It's a mile wide and an inch deep. Look at this. Look at that. I mean, if Trump doesn't win, Andrew Platts, Reynolds, Coke. Like that's okay. what we have here. And like that to me is not enough to suggest the polls are wildly off. Well, you've also got Donald Trump have been <laughs> Donald Trump like could go to jail or something. I mean, that's, all that's done is has increased his polling all year long. But there hasn't. Hasn't been any voting yet. There's been polling. Hasn't been any voting. But there's, there's been reporting. When there's plenty of reports who go to these areas and talk to Republican voters who say that they they think the election was rigged and it was stolen and Trump's going to vanquish the, the, the enemies in Washington and defeat the swamp and all that stuff. I mean, you can find people who are like, oh, you know, I'm... I'm weighing between Haley and Trump. I'm not. I'm not committed to Trump just yet. But even those folks are not like... I need to stop Trump. Trump cannot be the nominee again. I mean, people exist. You can find them, but hardly at any evidence of, of, a, of a critical mass that you would need to actually take them out. Let me just restate my positions. I think 
Trump will not win Iowa and New Hampshire. Okay. He will lose one or the other. All right. Um, I think it's 80% likely Trump will be the nominee, but I am much more bull. I, I, I am much more bullish on the possibility that something weird is going to happen once people actually start voting. And you know what the pollsters are going to say, Bill? The polls were right. <laughs> the polls weren't wrong. What happened is late deciders came in and they broke late. And uh, the independents or the non-affiliated showed up in greater numbers than we anticipated. And New they're going to have all the bullshit down if it happens, okay? Trust me, the polls are never actually wrong. Well, I think when Santorum won Iowa, I don't think he was leading polls. I'd I'd have to go back. There were. Do you remember, Bill? I think as late as December, there were twenty people showing up at his rallies. He would go to rallies, and twenty people would show up, and he won Iowa. How does that? Well, what what I'm happen? say though, Matt, is I I believe he was. There was clear momentum in polls late, late. I mean, so I'm, I'm looking at, uh, you know, he was, you know, in single digits in late December. You know, this is like around 7%. But by the very end, he had gone up to 16. So I think, I think he only won. He was like in the 20s to actually win. You know, there's a very, there's a very close race with multiple. Well, that will happen if Ron DeSantis wins Iowa. The same thing is going to happen. It was like, well, but the day before the election, he was at 18 percent. Well, OK, I mean, if we're seeing I mean, so so in this, you know, I mean, this Santorum had at least gotten within 10 points in the final average. Um, he was he was at he was at 16 and Romney was at 23 and Ron Paul was at 21, 22. Uh, uh, if, you know, again, we're, we're less than seven weeks away. Uh, so uh, if we see, I mean, so there's probably going to be a certain consolidation that occurs as you get closer to the election day. But if Trump is still up by 20 plus points, it would be truly shocking to see him lose. Now, your momentum just can happen, you know, very small race, not a lot of people, you know, maybe there's just some sort of, you know, vibe that kind of courses through the elected at the very last minute, but you don't want to, you don't want to see some kind of really significant movement, you know, in late, because this is a January 15th uh, contest, late December, early January. You don't, you don't want to see that if you really want to, if this is really going to happen. I just hope you treated Liz fair better than you've treated Nikki Haley. <laughs> I hope you didn't go to the concert and like, oh, well, I'm not sure that's as good as Alanis Morris said. <laughs> you know, Alanis broke late. <laughs> Liz right. Fair has a, has, has a proven record of quality. Candace <laughs> and Haley have proven nothing, nothing at all. <laughs> Here's the other okay. thing. I know, I know we've dwelled on this for the whole show, and maybe it's a boring show that we've stayed on this one topic the whole time. If either DeSantis or Haley actually starts making waves, there's going to be a blowback period. There's going to be a, you know, Trump's not going to sit back idly and say, let, let them have their momentum. I mean, Haley in particular, the, the, the hurt has not come on Haley yet. And there's plenty to say. There's plenty of phoniness to pick apart 
plenty of attack ads you could run if she shows the slightest hint of actually giving Trump a run, run for his money. Uh, one of the other reasons why I don't think she is, I mean, she could possibly move up with some consolidation, but there are weak spots to exploit. Ronald Reagan ain't walking through that door, as they say. Uh, you go to war with the army you have, not the army that you want. And uh, that army is Nikki Haley. <laughs> well, do you want to talk about anything else before we wrap up? Or should we? Or I, I'm your- exhausted at this point. You <laughs> flummoxed me, Bill. Um, I, I, I'm good. Anything else? Anything you want to plug? I mean, uh, anything about Biden or Israel I think we should talk about? Well, I, look, this ties into a plug. I just had Simon Rosenberg on Matt Lewis in the news, <laughs> my, uh, my little podcast. Um, and I would say this, if you are a Democrat out there who is freaking out about the polls um, and you're bedwetting or you're worried about that and you need someone to talk you down. Now, Bill Scher can do that. He's tried to do it. Uh, and Bill's been right a lot lately. I'm saying like the last couple of years, Bill's been right a lot, but you might have become inured to him talking you down. Maybe it doesn't do the trick anymore. You're still freaked out. I would recommend listening to Simon as well. Um, he's pretty persuasive he's and he's been right. <laughs> he's been right a lot lately, uh, the last few years. Um, and I guess he'll be right until he's not, but he, but he's he's on a pretty good run. And so I think if you're worried and you want something to calm you down, you should listen to that podcast. There's one thing I'd say, and I'm sure Simon says similar things. I mean, I'm talking about the polling because Trump is up by you know, an average of 30 points in Iowa and, average, and, and even far more in national polling in the primary. Um, we've had a, a, in the Trump-Biden trial heat, real clear politics average, like the range has generally been like one point either way. Although in the past couple of weeks, Trump got over two. So it was, it was Trump plus, it was Trump plus 2.6 yesterday. Now, just in the past two days, two polls came out with Biden up by a little bit. uh, And now the average is Trump 1.9. Like, that's just not a lot of movement overall. I mean, but like the slightest bit of movement Trump's way causes massive Democratic freakout, partly because people can't believe that everything that's happened in the past year would lead to an improvement for Trump. It, 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 it fries the brain. Yeah. Um, uh, and I under, so I understand that gut reaction, but just from a strict, you know, emotionally detached data perspective, you know, being behind two points a year out, like that's not the death knell of a, of a presidential candidate. Like, that, yeah. that well, and, and let me tell you, one of uh, you know, we talked for forty-five minutes. So Simon made a lot of a lot of interesting points, but but one of his points is he believes that the the MAGA, the argument against MAGA, not Trump per se, but MAGA, this movement that's illiberal, that likes coups, that is dangerous that is the most compelling message that Democrats have. And that he, he will argue that it always works. And interestingly, he will make the point that in 2002, it worked everywhere they used it. So in battleground states, Democrats won uh, because 
they were sending out this message that Trump is dangerous, that MAGA is dangerous. Places they didn't use it, like New York State, for example, Republicans actually had a little bit of a red wave. He would say it's because they weren't communicating that message. Um, and so uh, it's not the case that things are so crazy and dangerous that voters are going to organically pick up on it and vote against Trump. Simon would argue that the Democrats and the Biden campaign have proven very effective at using Trump and MAGA in, a, in an orchestrated campaign to turn out their voters and to win elections. And that across the board, and this goes into abortion as well, um, but that they're on, what, three, three for three or four for four or wh whatever you want to say. Well, in terms I, of the I, would, I would partly part ways from that. I mean, it's certainly possible that anti-MAGA, stressing election denialism, threats to democracy, threats to abortion rights uh, can help Democrats overcome any discontent about the economy 2022 is your example of that, where inflation was even worse, and they still did better than expected, gained a Senate seat, won some gubernatorial races, et cetera. Uh, but that doesn't QED the argument that it will work in a presidential election when an incumbent is on the ballot in your party and people are still unhappy about the economy. You know, I am pretty bullish on Biden in 2024, but not because I think anti-MAGA can save the day regardless of other circumstances. I feel very positive about the economic trajectory. Uh, we just had good numbers come out today. We have a revised upward of third quarter GDP, um, the personal consumption uh, index, which is the, the key inflation indicator that the Fed uses. That's in a, in a good place. Um, you know, so long as those economic numbers continue, I, I see no evidence that there, there is no example of a, an incumbent president, an elected incumbent president losing with okay economic numbers, let alone like, you know, good economic numbers. Uh, so that's, that's where my optimism largely lies. I do think anti-MAGA can probably help some degree overcome bad economic numbers. But if they're really bad, if we're here with a, if a genuine recession, if inflation shoots up again in a big way, I wouldn't go into election day feeling super confident. I mean, make, barring poll numbers saying otherwise. Yeah. And I don't want to misrepresent. I mean, Simon and I talked for 45 minutes. And so there was a lot of nuance and complexity. I think you two would probably agree. Um, but definitely, uh, I recommend checking that out. And again, if you are struggling with <laughs> some <laughs> anxiety over recent polls, um, and this is not me hitting what you said, because I think there's a big difference between the Republican primary polling and the general election polling. But if you're a Democrat who's having some anxiety, I think that listening to this conversation would help calm you down and, and uh, buttress you. <laughs> All right, sir. Uh, anything else you want to plug? That's it for me. Just, you know, read my stuff at the Daily Beast. Um, check out the podcast. Uh, one thing I want to mention, uh, the founding editor of the Washington Monthly, Charlie, Charlie Peters, passed away at the age of 96 on Thanksgiving. 
Uh, and if you don't know about Charlie Peters, he you know he led the Washington Monthly for 32 years. He cultivated an enormous alumni network of Washington Monthly writers who went on to to, to great things. Uh, so there's a lot of influence he's had on the whole journalism profession. Uh, and we've had a series of remembrances at the Washington Monthly uh, website in the past several days. Uh, so it's definitely worth checking those out and seeing, uh, you know, the legacy uh, that 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 he's had and, and continue, continues to burn on uh, in the Washington Monthly today. Very well. All right. Well, our condolences, and uh, we shall uh, we shall do this again next week, Bill. All right. See Take you care, Matt.